This is DW News, live from Berlin. Fighting words. Putin blasts the West over the Ukraine crisis. The Russian leader accuses the U.S. and its allies of trying to draw Moscow into war. The Biden administration says America is beefing up its military presence in the region. Also coming up, athletes are preparing to go for gold at the Winter Olympics in Beijing. But political issues and the ongoing pandemic are causing headaches for organizers. And Israel eases the rules on vaccine passes. But new COVID-19 cases are still running at record levels. And many doctors and nurses are in quarantine. Um, Leila Hark, thank you so much for joining us. Russian President Vladimir Putin has launched a blistering verbal attack on the West as the crisis over Ukraine shows no signs of easing. In his first public remarks this year on the standoff, President Putin has accused the U.S. and its allies of ignoring Moscow's concerns over security in the region. And he says the West is trying to draw Russia into war. For weeks, he has left the talking to others, but now President Vladimir Putin has accused the United States of trying to drag Russia into conflict. The United States' most important goal is to contain Russia. That's the thing. In this sense, Ukraine itself is just a tool to achieve this goal. This can be done in different ways. One of them is to draw us into armed conflict. Across the border in Kiev, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson offered a show of support to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Johnson warned that war would be a lose-lose outcome. Russian invasion of Ukraine would be a political disaster, a humanitarian disaster. In my view, it would also be, for Russia, for the world, a military disaster as well. And... Uh, uh, the uh, potential invasion completely uh, flies in the face of President Putin's claims to be acting in the interests of the Ukrainian people. Ukraine is not completely relying on diplomacy to protect them. President Zelensky announced a huge addition to his nation's army. We will create a new political cooperation format in Europe between Ukraine, Great Britain and Poland. Within the next three years, we will increase the number of the Ukrainian armed forces by 100,000 professional soldiers. In a video released just hours before Boris Johnson's visit, soldiers tested rocket artillery systems just north of the Crimean Peninsula, which Russia invaded and annexed from Ukraine in 2014. Both sides are preparing for war, while the diplomats try to make peace. And we're also hearing reports that U.S. President Joe Biden has formally approved U.S. military deployment to Eastern Europe with troops ready to deploy, quote, in the coming days. DW correspondent and NATO expert Terry Schultz is watching the situation uh, closely. Uh, Terry, what more are you hearing from uh, NATO on this? And is NATO planning a similar move? Well, Leila, this uh, announcement from President Biden is about U.S. troops, but 
anything the U.S. does as the largest NATO ally, of course, reinforces NATO operations. Um, I am hearing from my sources here in Brussels that there will be up to 2,000 U.S. troops uh, designated for Poland, put on high readiness in case Russia should make any further moves. And we will surely hear more specifics from the Pentagon. Now, what allies do is they announce uh, additional resources, additional contributions that they are willing to send to Eastern allies or to Ukraine. Some of these are put under NATO operations. Some of them are bilateral reassurance and deterrence measures, as this latest announcement from the Biden administration is expected to be. And I should point out the U.S. already leads a NATO operation in Poland, the enhanced forward presence that is something that was deployed there and in the Baltic states after the 2014 invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Terry, how is NATO managing uh, this crisis? What, what can NATO and Europe at large, you also cover the EU for us, do to deter Vladimir Putin from possibly invading Ukraine again? They're very much hoping that exactly what's going to be announced here today will work as a deterrent. Nobody knows for sure what, what Vladimir Putin is intending to do. And what the U.S. and its uh, European NATO allies are hoping is that by building up forces and diplomatic pressure to make clear to the Kremlin that it would suffer consequences like it's never seen before, should it continue this buildup, should it even consider crossing the border into Ukraine again, uh, that the price would simply be too high to bear. So the U.S. and NATO are very much hoping that there is still a diplomatic way out of this crisis, but they're backing it up militarily to make the Kremlin see it their way. And Terry, finally, we understand that the Russian president is due to meet the Chinese president, President Xi Jinping, on Friday. Now, there have been unsubstantiated suggestions that Russia would not start an incursion as long as the Beijing Olympic Games are on. Is, is there anything to this suggestion? Well, we have been hearing that in serious foreign policy discussions, that President Putin would not want to diminish the Chinese games, that the Olympic Games held in China, um, by doing something that would take attention away from the Olympics, which have already, you know, been very beleaguered by diplomatic boycotts by the U.S. and other countries. But that's just one theory. There are also more scientific theories about when President Putin could invade Ukraine based on, you know, the, the ice on the ground, the frozen and the frozen turf that he could get his tanks across. So there are all kinds of, of, you know, possible scenarios under which he would or would not invade Ukraine. And simply, we always come back to the fact that nobody has any idea what Putin has in his mind. DW's Terry Schultz reporting from Brussels. Terry, thank you so much for your continued coverage. Now, even before Friday's official opening, the Beijing Winter Olympics are mired in controversy. Concerns about human rights abuses and the high number of coronavirus cases threaten to overshadow the event. Almost 3,000 athletes will be competing for glory. But is the sport at risk of becoming a sideshow? Billions have been invested into making Beijing 2022 an extravagant festival of competition, but the build-up has been about so much more than sport. Politics, for instance. Some nations, including the US and the UK, have declared a diplomatic boycott over human rights issues and will send competitors, but no ministers or officials. Meanwhile, organisers have threatened athletes with punishment for any behaviour or expression that they deem in breach of Chinese law and will expect the IOC to rigorously enforce its own rules limiting protests. 
In the Olympic Charter, there are very strict rules. So, for the medal ceremonies and during the competitions, political protests are not permitted. On other occasions, like at press conferences or during interviews, or on personal platforms, the athletes are free to express their opinions. But the athletes must be responsible for what they say. Due to COVID, athletes and journalists will be kept in secure bubbles, while no spectator tickets will be sold to the public. Organisers say health and safety are paramount. Of course, COVID countermeasures are still on top of our agenda. We have been making effective measures and everything is under control. Without a safe games, there would be no games. So we will make sure that the health and safety of all participants is our top priority. A total of 32 new cases were reported by Olympic authorities on Wednesday alone. As expected, the pandemic is proving to be one of several headaches for the organisers of Beijing 2022. All right, uh, two days away from the Beijing Winter Olympics, and so happy to have here with me Tom Gunoy from DW Sports. Tom, um, just how much disruption do we expect as a result of the ongoing pandemic? Uh, plenty, I think, is probably in a word about the answer to that question. Now, of course, there has already been a fair bit of disruption, as we heard there in the report, 32 cases registered just today in Beijing. Obviously, the athletes are inside the closed-loop COVID bubble, um, and they're subject to daily testing. The worst-case scenario, of course, for any athlete is to test positive and then it's games over. They won't be allowed to compete, of course. Um, for reporters and for other participants, for officials, they're also in bubbles in Beijing at the moment, subject to a lot of testing as well. And also for spectators, the disruption has basically already happened. Now, it was at the end of last year when the decision was announced that Beijing organisers wouldn't be selling any, t uh, any tickets to international spectators. They then, earlier on this year, in January, announced that they wouldn't even sell a public, you know, a stage a public sale of tickets to domestic spectators. There will be a few who are specially invited along. It's slightly unclear exactly to whom those tickets will be going. Um, but yeah, obviously COVID casting a long shadow over the Games. And another uh, thing that's also casting a long shadow, of course, diplomatic uh, boycotts by the likes of the United States and the United Kingdom. How has that uh, been received by Beijing? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, of course, it's not been taken uh, with it's not been received with glee. Now, it obviously doesn't go as far as a full boycott of the games that was discussed in some countries. But um the UK and the US, also Australia, have elected to stage a diplomatic boycott. That just means that they won't be sending any government officials or any diplomatic representatives. Now, China accused the USA of grandstanding political posturing and of undermining the games when the diplomatic boycott was announced. Um, and it's one of several political issues that are thorns in China's side during these games. Another example, of course, is the participation of Taiwan. Now, Taiwan is a territory that's claimed as part of China by the People's Republic. They compete at the Games under the banner of Chinese Taipei. And the delegation from Chinese Taipei had said that they wouldn't attend the opening or closing ceremonies. Now, they've now been told by the IOC that their participation is required but, you know, for these kind of things to be making the headlines, it obviously distracts from the games. And, of course, it's um, inconvenient for China. It's not what they hope people would really be talking about. And in a few words, Tom, what can fans expect from Beijing 2022? 
Uh, in sporting terms, obviously plenty of highlights. Now, one of the things that a lot of people are looking forward to is the bobsled, uh, because we will see the return of a Jamaican bobsledding team to that competition after 24 years of absence from the Games. We've also heard great things about that track. It's brand new, supposed to be very interesting, very long, lots of interesting corners and things. So that's something to look out for. That starts Thursday next week. Um, curling, of course, an iconic sport at the Winter Games. That's actually begun today, the first preliminary rounds. So, yeah, in sporting terms, also plenty of highlights, obviously, on offer. We can't wait. Tom Gunoy, thank you so much. Thank you. Israelis may soon be able to put away their vaccine passes for good. Israel was one of the first countries to introduce the pass, but officials now worry it could give false assurances. The Omicron variant is infecting many who are fully vaccinated. Starting Sunday, the pass will only be required in high-risk areas like hospitals, where healthcare workers are battling record COVID-19 infections. Since the early morning, Yael Liron has been on duty on a COVID ward. An elderly patient needs oxygen and some comforting words. The COVID wards at this hospital in Tel Aviv are extremely busy. There are a lot of cases. We have new intakes every day. When one is released, another is submitted at night. Numbers are on the rise. We always experience a delay. Even when the general infection rate seems lower, we at the hospital are still dealing with the higher numbers from the two weeks previously. Though overall Omicron infection rates show signs of slowing down, the number of patients in hospital remains high. Israel was one of the first countries in the world to roll out a rapid vaccination program. Over 65% of the population have been vaccinated twice, but only 48% have had a third booster shot so far. In January, those in the most vulnerable categories were offered a fourth. During this wave, most of our patients have been elderly. It reminds us of the flu. The complications are comparable. People are dying now the way they would die from the flu. Also, fewer people are dying of Omicron. Most patients on this ward are vaccinated elderly people with underlying health conditions. Working on the ward is exhausting for everyone. Adding to this, hospitals, like other institutions, are struggling with staff shortages. Due to the highly contagious Omicron variant, high numbers of doctors and nurses are in quarantine. It's difficult. It's the fifth time we've been at full capacity here in Israel, but we're dealing with it. That's just how it is, as they say, and it's our job to look after patients. But it's definitely hard, and there's a lot of burnout among the staff. We have to work very hard, but we're happy to do what's necessary. But yes, it's exhausting, and it doesn't look like it's going to end soon. Although, I am personally cautiously optimistic. For now, everybody here must keep going, doing the best they can for the ongoing influx of patients and hoping that the peak of the current wave will soon subside.
That report by Tanya Kramer. We can take you now to Tel Aviv and speak to Nadav Davidovich, a epidemiologist from the Ben-Gurion University of the Negev. Uh, Professor, welcome to DW News. Uh, I understand that you sit on the panel that advises the Israeli government, and you've been critical in the past of some of their uh, approaches. With cases still high in your country, is this the right decision? The Green Pass actually was introduced uh, in order to have uh, safe epidemiological spaces. Uh, it was not introduced in order to enforce vaccinations. Vaccinations are extremely important. They saved in Israel, according to our estimates, about 20,000 deaths. Um, but currently, with the Omicron and uh, with the fact that uh, people vaccinated the uh, um, they are saved probably from uh, hospitalizations and uh, death, but much less so uh, in being infected. So we need to adapt uh, the Green Pass. Uh, we don't want to abolish it uh, altogether. We want to keep it uh, also for the future if needed. And uh, currently probably this is best to have it either as a voluntary measure or when uh, you have high risk situations such as hospitals, elderly care homes, or uh, other uh, high-risk uh, activities. Um, vaccinations are very, very important. Uh, we are now in a really unprecedented situation and we need to adapt uh, the current measures uh, to the epidemiology. Mm. Uh, we need to vaccinate. We need mm. to still use the mask, of course. And um, I mm. think that uh, by the fact that we are adapting the Green Pass, it's very important also from uh, the trust of the public. Right. Now, Doctor, Israel has been slowly rolling back curbs. Is there widespread support for that? Um, I think that uh, the current government, uh, you know, was uh, trying to balance uh, the measures in terms of uh, keeping as much as you can uh, the number of cases, but remembering the public health is also about uh, social support and economy. Uh, I think that uh, currently we could do much better in terms of uh, opening schools. I think it was an important um, factor, but um, there was lots of confusion and tension between the Ministry of Health and Ministry of Education. And there were also criticism about uh, the economic support because so many people are in isolation. We're learning to live with the COVID. If you compare Israel uh, situation and other countries, you know, to what happened about a year ago, things are very different. We have adoption of testing and many other things. We need to learn to live with the virus because uh, COVID is going to stay with us. We're learning that uh, the FDA is going to hear uh, Pfizer about having vaccines below the age of five. And I think this will be another important measure because uh, vaccination are going to enter, I think, uh, finally into the regular schedule of uh, children. And uh, we are going to deal uh, with it and strengthening the healthcare system as much mm. as needed. They suffered a lot during the last two years. Mm. Epidemiologist uh, Nadav Davidovich in Tel Aviv. Sir, thank you so much for taking the time to answer our questions. Thank you. Lots of health. Now, a roundup of some other stories making world news today. Drug makers BioNTech and Pfizer are seeking emergency authorization from U.S. authorities for a COVID-19 vaccine for children under the age of five. If approved, the extra low doses would be the first for small children. 
At least 26 people have been killed in the Democratic Republic of Congo after a high-voltage power cable snapped and fell. The incident happened on the outskirts of the capital, Kinshasa. Authorities say the cable hit homes and a market, killing several people by electrocution. In Australia, two large bushfires have prompted evacuations on the outskirts of Perth. An emergency warning has been issued with blistering temperatures and high winds threatening to intensify the fires in the coming days. The fires have burned through some 100 hectares of land. The European Commission has given the green light for some nuclear energy and natural gas investments to count as sustainable. Officials say private investment can't contribute to climate goals. But critics claim the plan jeopardizes the bloc's target of carbon neutrality by the year 2050. EU member states remain fiercely divided over the so-called energy taxonomy. Austria is considering a legal challenge. Yutapolis is an MEP, a member of the European Parliament for the Greens, and she joins us from Brussels. Thank you very much uh, to uh, making time and uh, speaking to us at DW News. Uh, Ms. Paulus, a global uh, warming threatens our common uh, future when it comes to our, our goals to uh, achieve uh, zero carbon neutrality. When we can't rely 100% on renewables, we do need nuclear and gas as transitional technologies as you know until we have enough renewables well it is true that we will need gas for a limited time to come um, wherefore nuclear would probably not even be online in time to actually make a significant contribution to our climate goals but that should not be a reason to label them as sustainable which is the first um, aim of the taxonomy give a sign to investors what is a green investment. And this, I'm very sorry, is not green because it goes against the principles of the taxonomy. Now, right now, most EU households are, are more worried about how much their energy costs are, are rising, not how it is generated. Um, when do you expect renewables to provide cheap, plentiful and reliable energy? Well, actually, talking about cost, the the least expensive energy which you can buy, um, bring online today is, in fact, wind and solar. Look, for example, in Portugal, we have solar for less than one and a half cents per kilowatt hour. Even in Germany, which is not a major solar provider, we have prices of about four to five cents per kilowatt hour, whereas new nuclear comes with 12 cents per kilowatt hour and gas. If you buy gas, not even having built a power plant, you already have to pay. But is there enough of it? And sure, it's well. cheaper. It's cheaper. But is there enough of it? Can it, it bridge that gap that, you know, we need to have reliable source of, uh, sources of energy right now? This is true, but will we have reliable sources of energy by building more power plants for gas, which is, as we just found out, more expensive? We should reserve our precious green investments for renewables. Of course, people can build gas power plants, but sorry, this should not be brought to the gold standard of a taxonomy. Now, we've heard that Austria and Luxembourg, uh, they are prepared uh, to um, legally challenge this plan. Do you think anything will stop this from being implemented? 
Well, before a legal challenge will occur, we will, of course, have the opportunity in the European Parliament to object against this delegated act. And my political group and I will fight like hell in order to find a majority for this. But in case that a legal challenge is necessary, um, I will find it very interesting how the European Court of Justice will judge the fact that um, this delegated act um, violates Article 290 of the Treaty of the Functioning of the European Union, meaning that it doesn't detail out something, but it adds something new to a primary legislation, which is in fact not what a delegated act is supposed to do. Jutta Paulus, Green MEP in Brussels, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Here in Germany, debate is raging over whether a former far-right politician can go back to his old job as a judge. Jens Meyer was a member of parliament for the far-right AFD party. He now wants to return to the courts after failing to win re-election. He used to be a member of parliament for the far-right AFD party. And recently he was categorized as extremist by the domestic intelligence agency. Jens Maia is known for his far-right and unconstitutional statements, also while he was in Parliament. Back in 2017, he was reprimanded for trivializing the Holocaust. This whole propaganda and re-education directed against us, which is supposed to persuade us that Auschwitz was factually the consequence of German history, I hereby declare this cult of guilt to be over, to be finally over. In September last year, Maya was not elected for a second term in Parliament. Now, he wants to go back to his previous job as a judge in the German state of Saxony. According to the law, he's allowed to do that. But many believe the justice minister can stop him from doing so. His behavior during his time as a member of parliament gives reason to at least initiate disciplinary proceedings and to examine whether one can also use his statements to accuse him of having violated his official duties. This could possibly even lead to his dismissal as a judge. The Justice Ministry in Saxony doesn't think it can pursue this route. But there's another possibility, a so-called judge impeachment. If judges violate the German constitution, they can be removed from office after a vote by a two-thirds majority in the state parliament and a decision by the federal constitutional court. But the hurdles are high and the clock is ticking for those who want to stop Maya. You're watching DW News live from Berlin. Coming up next, Made in Germany asks whether capitalism can ever be environmentally friendly. I'm Leila Harak in Berlin. On behalf of all of us here, thanks so much for watching. We'll be back with the world headlines at the top of the hour. Hope to catch you then.
fashion. A billion dollar business for the few. Gross exploitation for the many. And pollution for everyone. The Chinese fashion giant Shein eclipses anything like it before. Ever faster and ever cheaper, but it will cost the world so much more than money. Made in Germany. Next on DW. DW's Crime Fighters are back. Africa's most successful radio drama series continues. This season, the stories focus on hate speech, cholera prevention, and sustainable charcoal production. All episodes are available online. And of course, you can share and discuss on DW Africa's Facebook page and other social media platforms. Crime Fighters, tune in now. Look closely. Listen carefully. You don't know how those simple things you miss until they're gone. Feel the magic. Discover the world around you. Subscribe to DW Documentary on YouTube.